Good evening and welcome to Rare Book School January session. Very nice. Our speaker this evening is Daniel Traster, who has uh, lectured before Rare Book School audiences a great many times. It's always a pleasure to welcome him to this podium. Thank you, Terry. It's always a pleasure to be here. Um, and always a surprise to see anybody still willing to listen. I assume that I don't have to wear anything for this thing to work. Librarians have to work to interest our publics in any books or manuscripts at all. We're so interested by what we have that it's easy to forget that not everyone finds our own manias as compelling as we do. The point of all our exhibitions is to interest our visitors in our holdings. We hope, too, that interested visitors will not only look at exhibited materials, but also, if our exhibits work, be moved to read, to study, or to use the materials shown in them in some way. This hope that our holdings be used is similarly difficult to realize. A teacher as well as a librarian, I have students who last semester were reading Dunn, Herbert, and Milton, 17th century English religious poets. Their family backgrounds are European, Asian, and African, and their religious backgrounds, I assume, are not, on, not always Christian. As an early reader of a version of this essay, Terry said, with a fine disregard for subtle points of the law, why not just ask them? <laughs> what knowledge would they bring to discussion of the religious views should the topic arise of Dunn, Herbert, or Milton? I tell my students that it can be helpful in a class of this sort to know something about European history during the early modern period and about Christianity, which is, I add encouragingly, one of the world's great religions. I cannot be certain that they will know much about either. My reality is a multicultural classroom. My task in it is to entice students from backgrounds just as diverse as my own to an interest in and engagement with literatures of chronologically distant times and geographically distant places. My task as a librarian does not differ in the slightest. It's a pedagogical task. It calls upon me to excite the interests of diverse audiences in topics they know little about and whose importance they do not always find immediately obvious. Quite literally nothing compels my students or me to take any interest in Europe's or America's histories, religions, books, or literatures. We face no compulsion, have no need to assume that these are somehow exceptional or essential. We all come from so many different backgrounds that our alternatives are legion. Indifference is one possible alternative here. Like my students, visitors to my library are also free 
to ignore Europe's or America's or any other places, histories, religions, books, or literatures. If I may be blunt, Europe or America, Asia or Africa, any place in the world or in space may be made an interesting subject for American students or readers, but none is any longer a required subject, whatever UVA's E.D. Hirsch may fondly imagine to the contrary. My task as a librarian resembles my task as a teacher to entice readers just as I try to entice students into engagement with the books my library exhibits that will make them seem, despite not being required, a worthwhile elective. In practice, libraries, like museums, put up exhibitions for many reasons. These can include thanking a donor or trying to attract one, providing an occasion for its own staff to learn about a library's resources. I remember Ed Wolf, Terry remembers Jim Wells, saying that the only reason to put up an exhibit is that your own ignorant staff can learn what you've got. <laughs> or filling exhibition spaces that library directors like the goddess Natura who abhors a vacuum want to see filled, particularly if they've paid money for their renovations recently, or creation. We could all add many other reasons, all of them good, valid, and practical. The one reason which I'm really interested in this evening is that some libraries and their administrators believe that, like universities, they have an educational function. To them, it may therefore seem a good idea to put up a show in the expectation or hope that someone, in addition to staff, will learn something from it. There is one difficulty in this prescription, at least one. That is, the exhibitor needs to think about why a show is worth putting up, not simply from the librarian's point of view, but also from the point of view of visitors. This pedagogical impulse underlies an exhibition that I want to speak about here for exemplary purposes. It's one thing to enunciate a principle. It's another thing to exemplify how it might be put into practice. Some years ago, my colleagues and I mounted an exhibit called, and some of you will find this title resonant, The Work of Book Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction. Fine bookmaking in France and Germany between the two world wars. Originally, we had in fact hoped at least to try to flatter a potential donor, but it turned out that his books were already promised elsewhere, and since elsewhere was in our own city, and we knew the head of that collection, we felt it would be impolitic to try to poach. We went ahead with the exhibit anyway. First, we thought that we might learn something ourselves about a kind of European book not all that widely collected in the United States. Second, the exhibition would fill exhibition spaces our director likes to see filled. Most important, 
we actually thought our lenders' books might make an educational show for the constituencies we flatter ourselves we serve. Exhibiting these books presented a chance for us and for our audiences to think about the function of books at a time when their domination of the means of transmitting and preserving information, knowledge, and civilization is constantly eroding. Here was a selection of books quite idiosyncratic in many ways. Their function, perhaps their most curious idiosyncrasy of all. Some are the ordinary stuff of the private and the fine press collector, but not all of them. The collection contains a kind of book, often French or German, usually illustrated, which attracts in the Anglo-American bibliophilic world relatively little interest or collecting competition. What were the makers of these books, Livre d'Artiste, responding to? What were they trying to create when they made these books? And what could a library do when it showed them to bring to some sort of life a kind of book that lies outside the experience of most of our students, faculty, and visitors. These books lie outside their experience even if they are among those for whom the book, rather than the media, remains a primary means of appropriating knowledge. Now, I should point out that our exhibition space would have accommodated a large and, I can assure you, also an endearing show of sumptuous pieces. We could have given it a sage and a serious title, but it would really have been a show of pretty books from the collection of our lender. Given the nature of his resources, which were astonishingly vast, I might add astonishingly vast, especially in view of the size of the home that he can afford, given what he spends on his collection. <laughs> People would have stopped and looked. This would have been a sumptuous show to see. But pretty books is a somewhat problematic category, even though I would argue that it remains all too common an organizing principle in book exhibitions. Our institution and our audiences need something a bit more constructed. Pretty books makes no point at all. Their exhibition hopes merely to elicit pleased exclamations from passers-by. To make a point, to construct a point, is to make the book speak to passers-by, to give them a voice which, when they are being exhibited, is what they need most. We in the library need them to have a voice, too. Our students and faculty are audiences to whom, first and foremost, at least in the kind of context out of which I speak, we must speak, or permit our books and manuscripts to speak. If we do not do this, gradually our audiences will cease to be interested in the library. Eventually, they will cease even to be aware of or to care about it. Our books and we both 
must speak to them in ways that have some chance of capturing their interests if we are to survive as meaningful constituents in the intellectual life of the university and its broader community. We have a lot of competition. And it's easy for those of us who are enthusiasts about what we've got to forget that what we've got, enthusiastic though we may be about it, does have competition from enormous, <clears throat> enormous numbers of other media. We found our entree into the collector's books, one that we hoped would provide them a meaningful context through the context of a now dead but also much studied and valorized cultural theoretician of this century, Walter Benjamin. We wanted our audiences better to appreciate what, without some such context, could otherwise seem merely a collection of pretty but irrelevant bibliographical jeu d'esprit pretty books. Giving them no intellectual context, we would have betrayed the books, their owner, and our responsibilities by failing to provide any content to attract the thoughtful interest of our audiences. Pretty books will attract a glance or a pleased exclamation. We wanted something more. If Benjamin illuminates the context from which these books emerged, then they relate to issues now vital in the American Academy. But because books on exhibition cannot speak for themselves, especially not about relationships that, however vital, are also not obvious, it is our responsibility to try to speak for them. Benjamin's point in the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction, his essay, whose title, obviously, we cribbed, is fairly complicated. It ain't light reading. Using his essay for the purposes of our exhibit, we altered and perhaps we reduced it in ways that might not pass muster in a scholarly journal. But what my colleagues and I wanted to do, in fact, what we thought we had to do, was not write an article for a scholarly journal. We get paid to do something else. We wanted to put up a show that would focus attention on part of a collection with many beautiful and unusual objects in it. We wanted that part to be coherent, focusing on finely printed, illustrated French and German books made in the period between the two world wars gave us a coherent starting point. Such books are often unfamiliar to our readers and visitors, for they are not common in many American libraries, including our own. Moreover, coming as they do from two very different bookmaking and aesthetic traditions, these French and German books are not often looked at together. Even now, it remains a little awkward, and one is a little self-conscious, about speaking about mid-20th century French and German intellectual and aesthetic relationships without some sense of tension. Yet these books do offer interestingly complementary as well as contrasting solutions to similar aesthetic problems. In short, our motives 
combined desire to show our audiences things they don't ordinarily see anywhere, appealing to what 1 John 2.16 or 2 John 1.16, I always forget that, calls lust of the eye, with the hope that we might do so in a way that would provoke thought. Such motives are, I believe, quite proper in a pedagogical setting. Deploying Benjamin in such an exhibition may, however, seem more of a rhetorical than a legitimate intellectual move. We thought that wasn't true. In fact, he proved irresistible because his work is so variously resonant with the books we were displaying. Benjamin lived in Germany until he ceased being the right kind of German. Then he took himself to France. That was not an experience that turned out to be terribly happy for him once the Germans arrived. And trying to cross the border into Spain after the fall of France, he hit the border on one of the very few days when he couldn't get through. Hannah Arendt says somewhere that if he'd hit it a day before, if he'd hit it a day later, no problema. He just lucked out, took himself back from the border, and blew his brains out. He was not optimistic about his future in an occupied France, with a lot of good reasons. A literary and philosophical intellectual, he concerned himself with what it means to be modern. Specifically, he asked what it means to be a work of art in the modern world. In his modern world, it was already, as in ours, it is as a matter of course, something of an obvious point that technology makes art instantly accessible, instantly reproducible. Art? Is this a good thing? A bad thing? A real thing? Is it art when it's reproducible? Or is it just a thing which, like many other things, we need to understand? Exhibiting books from the period in which Benjamin lived and wrote and from the two countries in which he mainly lived and wrote, we found him increasingly inescapable, even if only as a rhetorical device, but we found him, in fact, both a rhetorical device and something more than that. What we were showing were, indeed, what, as a library, we contain are books considered as works of art, which they sometimes are, books raise many of the issues that Benjamin raises, and they always have. What does it mean to say of a book intended to be accessible, and also precisely by way of differentiation from the manuscript which preceded it, mechanically reproducible, that it is a work of art. This exhibition took place recently, but also long ago enough so that we did not yet have the ability that we have now to mount a website for the show. I'm sorry we didn't. Virtual works of book arts 
on your screen make Benjamin's point in an explicit, in fact, in some respects, even a funny kind of way. And showing the point off in this medium would have been enjoyable for the show's curator. The show's curator assures you of that point. I will digress momentarily to add that in the context of Benjamin and mechanically reproducible works of art, there could be no question of the appropriateness, of the legitimacy of web reproduction, an issue that bothers some curators in many different sorts of exhibitions than ours. I don't know why. Not only have art catalogs provided virtual works of art for generations of museum-goers, but also even the most fanatic proponent of the view that originals only can speak for themselves forget, or so it seems to me, that every book or manuscript on exhibit has been transformed into a virtual simulacrum of itself as long as it is there. Books are meant to be touched, felt, smelled, and read. Just a moment before we were beginning this process, Terry recalled Ed Wolf speaking about the erotic touch, the erotic feel of a book a quotation that both of us remembered, but which I will, you'll be happy to know, spare you by, repeat, by not repeating for this audience right now. All of these things are things that putting books on exhibit instantly precludes. Does the visitor to our exhibitions ever see an original only the visitor who comes back after the show has come down or who convinces us to remove the book temporarily so that it can be used can be said to have contact with the thing itself. Every other viewing is of something just as virtual as what you see on your screen. The book arts, in an age of mechanical reproduction, in any case, became the frame for the exhibition we mounted. We showed only a fraction of our lender's collection of French and German imprints from 1918 through 1939. Benjamin, knowledgeable about books, a resident of both Germany and France, was a person almost literally specific to the years between the two world wars. Could these books, or books like them, have formed part of the undergirding, part of the experiential superstructure through which Benjamin came to know and then meditated about the issues raised by the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction? I recommend to my students, but I will take this opportunity to recommend to you all, unpacking my library an essay that appears in the same volume, Illuminations, of Benjamin's essays that the work of art appears in and suggests that his knowledge of books 
is something that is indeed very important to Benjamin. This is not simply an idle extrapolation. Books are something that do in fact matter to him very much. We asked the question about whether these books could have formed part of that background. We did not answer it. Does this make our show dishonest? I don't think so. Books are often less easy to exhibit, even than works of art. We often say glibly, and I've repeated it several times this evening, that books speak for themselves. The sad truth is that contrarily books are mute unless they are read. But books on show cannot be read, as already noted. They also cannot be touched, handled, or sniffed, depending upon which way your erotic proclivities would the book move you. But most of all, they cannot be read. Despite this handicap, despite these handicaps, we want people to be interested in the books we show. We want them to feel that these books provoke reflection upon things worth thinking about. If our exhibitions provoke them to return for another look at the books they've contained, to read and to contextualize them, to ask questions of and about them, to become, in short, intrigued enough to want to use them, then perhaps they have achieved their pedagogical goal. Perhaps they have achieved that goal even if our visitors disagree with what we've said or feel that they could have asked better questions, provided better answers than we did. Different libraries quite legitimately define different functions in their exhibits from those functions I have just sketched for hours. Some may have the luxury of speaking only to themselves. Others may speak, and more power to them, only to their donors. Others may feel that impeccable scholarship and exactitude that combine to answer questions rather than merely asking them are alone permissible. In our situation, we have to try to engage students and their teachers and to do so in a world in which we face competition from a lot of other possible media through which the world can be apprehended and interpreted. We mounted this exhibition to suggest not answers, but questions. In a world in which art is just another mechanical reproducible, what do these books do? What's their function? What are they trying to say to their consumers and years later to us as their viewers? Many were clearly produced by makers who thought of themselves as stretching between two very different worlds, the world of the reproducible book and the world of the individualized, unique work of art. What prompted them to attempt such a stretch? How well did they succeed? Was their effort worthwhile? Does their example shed light on larger issues of art and modernity? Benjamin offers a provocative framework in which to think about such questions. For our audience in our academic context, his current stature helps to bring a now distant historical context between the wars 
and a distant geographical context, Europe, between the wars, closer to home, and to do so in a fashionable way. Libraries and librarians tend to participate in the worlds of teaching, learning, and study passively. We await the arrival of students or other readers who need one or another of the books or manuscripts we keep for them. Exhibitions are among the few occasions when we take a more active role. More often than not, I think, we squander the opportunity exhibitions give us actively to engage our varied audiences. At my institution, our ineptitude, ignorance, and lack of imagination may have kept this exhibition from fulfilling all of its potential. But as we worked on it, my colleagues and I felt that whatever else might be said about our show, it was not an opportunity squandered, at least not thoughtlessly. By making its curators think these books just possibly might have had a similar effect on some of those who looked at the show. You will by now have noticed what I've not said about this exhibit. It did not merely assume that these books would exercise an automatic attraction for its potential audiences. The exhibition tried instead to frame the objects it displayed in terms of issues that have contemporary and aesthetic and intellectual currency for academic audiences. Exhibiting older manuscript and printed materials, materials that date from the 15th, 16th, or 17th centuries, our approach is similar. Were we, for instance, to exhibit examples from our run, fairly strong, of Italian Renaissance epic poetry, we might refer to studies that discuss how Ariosto's publishers worked to canonize Ariosto Furioso more or less immediately upon its appearance. We would frame such an exhibit by locating it within a context emphasizing canon formation, publishing history, and the presentation of texts in the material objects that contain and transmit them. Exhibiting Spanish and Latin American books dating from the 15th through the 18th centuries, all concerned with Spanish activities in the New World, we focused on issues that concern the relationships of colonists and indigenous peoples across a broad range of human activities. An exhibit last year of literal European books, that is, flown over from the, for the occasion from the Catholica Universiteit Leuven, was organized largely by our colleagues who came to us from Belgium for this purpose. A large printed catalog provided extensive scholarly background about each of the materials on exhibit for a copy of a big fat book. These told the history but let me call it the story of a library repeatedly risen from the ashes, despoiled by the French during the revolution, and then again in what has until very recently been this century by the Germans during the 1914 and 1939 wars. It was rebuilt after 1918 and again after 1945 on both of those occasions with considerable assistance from the United States. We showed a letter from Black Jack Pershing, for example, seeking funds for the library, 
that he'd written in 1919. By foregrounding issues that have contemporary academic, intellectual, but also even popular currency, we hope that we are emphasizing ways to think about the books we show and even about the institutions that house them by posing real problems or telling real stories about them. We hope we're giving them a voice that speaks to our readers. <clears throat> More modern books, wherever they're printed, are treated no differently. Currently preparing an exhibit of selections from an enormous collection of modern English language poetry given us as a gift. We will not frame the exhibit in terms of important poets the collector was able to acquire. Such a frame, we feel, would not differ from that of the pretty books approach we rejected when we exhibited French and German illustrated books. Our audiences assume that we accepted the collection because it contained important poets. They don't need to be convinced about that. They require no reassurance that we know what the hell we're doing. Well, maybe they do. Instead, we emphasize questions the collection raises about the reception, the audiences for modern poetry. The collector was poetry editor for the United States newspaper of record, the New York Times. Although it is a paper of record, it is not, nor has it ever been, an intellectual journal in the sense that one might use that term of a newspaper like Le Monde or Carriera de la Serra. What kind of interests did our collector have that his newspaper permitted him to express? Which of his interests was he unable to see into print? How did the entire paper, not just his own small area of it, review, that is, receive books and authors its poetry editor personally valued? What poets got bad reviews? or none at all? These questions, asked about what is at the very least one of the most important American reviewing organs, if not the most, have genuine significance for the ways in which one segment of modern literary expression found, or more often failed to find, its readers. Exhibited poets will include not only Americans, but also Canadians, West Indians, English, Welsh, Scots, Irish, Africans, Indians, Australians, and New Zealanders, the collection contains exemplars of all these Anglophone traditions. The topic that we hope will interest audiences whom we are inviting, in effect, to look at poetry books most unsympathetically behind glass is their reception. That reception helped to create the perception that these writers are all more or less difficult, hermetic, obscure, unreadable. They thus exemplify a modern poetry that has all too often at least seemed to cease to speak even to the kind of well-educated person who reads a newspaper of record, in part because such poetry often goes unmentioned by that very paper. The materials are being shown behind glass. We are asking, so to speak, whether they were, metaphorically, 
located behind glass at birth. Just the opposite, if you will, of the way in which his publishers presented the world with Ariosto's Orlando Furiosa. Manuscripts or books will, we think, interest our audiences when they are presented to them in terms of their interests and concerns. They will read, look at, and be interested in any materials if they are presented to them in meaningful, that is to say, pedagogically successful ways. In proffering to them what we exhibit and what we hold, we need to teach them why they should care about it. Librarians traditionally speak about our task, our mission, as threefold. We're supposed to acquire, to make accessible, and to preserve the materials, manuscript or printed, we gather for our collections. Gather enough of it, and the world will beat a path to our doors. That's a nice definition of our mission, but it's no longer enough. We have in a very real sense, succeeded so well with missions one, two, and three that the vastness of what we have collected, its magnitude and its significance, leaves it no longer obviously comprehensible. Its parts constantly increasing in size and the relationships between its parts constantly increasing in complexity seem increasingly incoherent and off-putting. Our very success has burdened us with a fourth requirement, interpretation, teaching, pedagogy. Nearly 20 years ago, Paul Robbie of Wolfenbüttel spoke at a conference in Boston urging librarians to assume responsibility for the study of the history of books, printing, and publishing, that is, for l'histoire du livre, that talk is now dated in ways that Robbie might not have predicted. Librarians, auctioneers, booksellers, and mirabili dictu professors in a wide array of disciplines all now work in this field. This change does not free librarians to reject Robbie's 1980 advice that we look inward at the history of the material artifacts with which we work. However, if we are to continue to speak to our users and engage them in thinking about and using the materials for which we care, then it is now time for us also to look outward to other interests our users and supporters express in the materials we collect for them. These interests may be, indeed they increasingly are, book historical in nature, but they may also be, and frequently are, broadly cultural and historical. Like all good teachers, we need to become not only narrowly expert in one field, but also broadly aware of other fields that provide ways for us to reach people whose interests and expertise may not be congruent with ours, but to whom we wish to speak anyway. In this talk, I've not emphasized, though I've mentioned, new digital or other technologies. I have, however, dealt with something that is, I think, at least as important, 
although it's not something often mentioned in learned or academic circles. And when it is mentioned, it is mentioned with what I think is rarely any admiration at all. You will have to forgive me for using a dirty word. It is marketing. We have a product. Books, manuscripts, information, knowledge, civilization, our product, call it by any or all of these terms, find another if it makes you cheerful. Has audiences, markets, whom we use our exhibitions to try to reach. We need, I suggest, to think about how to reach them. That is, to think about how to market our product to them. This is a concept whose gross vulgarity I confess, without, I fear, therefore feeling much impulse to apologize for it. People who pick up a pencil to correct a typographic error in the book they are reading are acting, whether they know it or not, as textual editors. Paul Oscar Christeller once commented. He added that they will be more careful correctors if they notice that textual editing is what they are doing. We are already doing marketing whenever we mount exhibitions. We might do them better were we actually to notice that what we're doing is marketing, seeking the audience our product needs. In mid-November, I participated in a conference in Philadelphia of representatives of regional cultural institutions. People from libraries, museums, and universities were among them. So were representatives of convention and visitors bureaus, hotels, businesses, and the media, all concerned with marketing the Philadelphia area as a cultural resource destination. In late November, I listened to a person from the Council of Europe speaking in Lyon, France, on exactly the same subject. I turned to a colleague and said, since she was speaking in French, am I understanding her correctly? She's really describing a sort of Euro Disney du livre, isn't she? And he said, yep. <laughs> it is easy to think of such an obsession with marketing, even of culture, as particularly crass. Easy but not, as it were, profitable. I can't afford a high and mighty distance from marketing techniques at my shop. My concern is to market my library and its contents. I want its books and manuscripts and its photographs and its sound and video recordings and its online databases to be read or to be used. I think, and in fact, really, I know that if they are not used, they will not survive. They will disappear more rapidly through disuse and neglect than they will disappear through use. And when they have gone because they stopped battering to anyone, they won't be missed. The question librarians must ask about the materials they care for is, how do we engage potential readers with these materials? How do we present any of it to them <clears throat> in ways that indicate 
that it is only as distant from us in date, in geography, in topic, as we allow it to remain by failing to imagine how we might learn to hear it. How do we teach them? Perhaps just as importantly, how do we teach ourselves to listen? Thank you.